You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Good morning. Good morning. I have made sure it's not in my beard, so let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy God. Father, you are perfect and, and righteous and just. You are seated on your throne above the highest heavens, Father, in glory and majesty. And Father, you still have compassion and mercy on us. You still listen to us when we pray, even though we are, are nothing but dust. But you listen to us and you love us, Father. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection, God. We thank you that, that we believe in him and that he has saved us. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for these people, this church. Father, I pray that uh, I will serve them today, that you will hide me behind the cross. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak through me, and I pray that you will bless, uh, bless these people this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, amen. Imagine that you've just been kidnapped by ISIS. You've been kidnapped, you've been beaten, you've been tortured, and you've been thrown into a prison, a cold, dark prison, and there's only one other person who's already chained up beside you. You're hurting, you're suffering, you're in pain, there's nothing to eat, there's nothing to drink, it's dark, cold, you can't sleep, and there's nothing that you can do. As the hours and the days go by, the person beside you that's chained up, they keep talking, they keep trying to tell you not to lose hope, that somebody is gonna come save you. And they keep telling you over and over again, somebody is gonna come save you. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, somebody bursts through the door, and they come, the rush, to, to set you free. But before they do, they're shot dead. And in your horror and shock, you look on. But then you hear the person beside you say, that's not him. Somebody else is coming to save us. And after a few days, it happens again. Somebody comes in to save you, but they're shot and killed too. And again, you're in horror. And again, the person beside you says, that's not them. Somebody else is coming to save us. But as the days and the weeks go on, start to lose hope. You start to fall into despair. And you start to come to a realization 
that you're going to die. And then comes the day that your captors come in. And they take you off the chains. They put a bag on your head. And they lead you to the beach where they're going to behead you. And as they put you on your knees, and as they're getting ready to perform the execution, you hear a commotion in the background. You hear a screaming, you hear hollering, you hear a fight. And you realize the person that has come to save you has come to save you. They set you free. They take the bag off your head. They release your chains. And you are finally saved. The people in Israel during this time are enslaved. They're in capture to sin. They're enslaved under their own sinfulness. And their punishment is coming. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this despair that Jeremiah is facing, God gives a message of hope that someone is coming to save them, that someone is coming to rescue them. We have this same captain, this same oppressor, sin and death. We are oppressed by sin and death, but someone has come to save us, and that someone is Jesus Christ. God gives to the people of Israel a new covenant, a covenant that promised them life, no longer based on their righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have that same hope and that same promise from God that we have life and security, not because of our righteousness, but because of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. If you would follow along as we read in chapter 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The first thing that we need to, to observe or to note is that the Old Testament law shows us how sinful and how much in distress we are. God has given them a new covenant that's going to replace the old covenant, the covenant that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We see in verse 32 that God said, makes a distinction between the two covenants. The covenant is simply a, a promise, a promise between two parties that we will do this and these things will happen. So for the people of Israel, 
they went to Mount Sinai. Moses went up on the mountain, and God gave him the law. God gave him the Ten Commandments to Moses. God gave him the requirements. And in return for their, their obedience to these requirements, to these laws, God would bless them. God would be with them, and God would protect them from any foreign people. God would bless them. But if they disobeyed God, if they broke the covenant, then all the curses that would befall their enemies would come upon them. This is a covenant between them. God is already gracious enough to give them this covenant. Since the Garden of Eden, God owed the people nothing. God didn't owe them his presence. God didn't owe them his favor. But God gave the people of Israel favor. He loved them because he chose to love them. And he gave this covenant to them. And look as it says, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. This isn't just some business relationship where you do this, I do this, and we never see each other. This is an intimate relationship, an intimate, deep, loving promise, partnership. This is as deep as any marriage can get between a, a wife and a husband. This is the relationship that was supposed to be between God and Israel. This marriage relationship. But despite the graciousness of God to take them out of the land of Egypt, to take them out of bondage, out of slavery, to bring them to Mount Sinai, to make them his people, to give them these promises that he will bless them among all the, above all the peoples of the earth. They broke his covenant. Moses couldn't even get down the mountain before they started worshiping false idols. And as Moses was going down the mountain, the Ten Commandments, the stone uh, tablets that God had given, that God had rolled with his own fingers, Moses threw down and they broke, which symbolized the broken covenant between God and his people. God would have been just, perfectly just, then and there to cast them out, to already give them the curses that they would do. But God was still merciful. He showed them mercy. He allowed them to make the sacrifices. He allowed them different things so that they could cover their sin. But none of these sacrifices worked. None of these sacrifices was sufficient. One, because the people sinned too much. They kept sinning. There's only so many animals. And all these animals could not uh, appease God. They could not make up for all the sin that the people of Israel committed. And also, these were animals. They weren't human. They couldn't finally, once for all, satisfy God's wrath against sin. And so this is what Jeremiah is facing. The penalty, the curse for breaking the law, for breaking God's covenant. The, the main covenant, the main curse was to be kicked out of the land that God had promised. And this is exactly what was happening in Jeremiah. Babylon was coming and, it, and Israel was leaving. They were leaving the land that God had given them because they broke the covenant with God. Now, we see 
Now, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And he's known as the weeping prophet because most of the book is really sad. Most of the book is a forewarning of what's coming, of the destruction that's coming from Babylon. The destruction that's going to happen, the exile that's going to happen, the curses that are being brought on them. It's a sad book. It's a tough read. If you lived in Israel hearing these things, you know, this would be pretty tough. This is why they threw Jeremiah in jail. They're tired of hearing him. So they threw him in jail because what he was saying was so heartbreaking. But in the middle of this book, we see this glimmer of hope. We see this, this glimmer of light, like a light shining through the darkness. That God, in all his mercy, is going to give them a new covenant. Give them another covenant that's not like the old covenant. That's different. We are similar to Israel. We have an oppressor, and that is sin and death. Every time I turn around, I sin. And I can look at my sin one week, and I say, you know what? I was an idiot. How did I do that sin? I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to learn from my mistake. And I will never fall back into that trap. You can mark your calendar. By the next week, I've done it again. And again, I'm repenting. I'm, I'm still an idiot. And we keep falling into this habit. A few weeks ago, I was able to hear a man speak, a preacher speak. And man, this man was a drug addict in, in, before he became the Christ. And he said he would go buy the drugs. And on the ride home, he would feel convicted and throw it out of his window. But by the time he got to his house, that it started. And he would go back to where he threw it in the ditch and get it. And we do that also. Whether it's drugs, whether it's uh, watching, watching things we shouldn't watch, whether it's relationships we shouldn't have, whether it's uh, habits that we know lead us to sin. We keep going back to these things. In the same way that Israel kept going back to their idols, back to their, their idolatry, back to their sin, we keep going back to ours. But the reason we go back to it the reason we disobey God is because we can't do anything else but disobey God. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God gave them a covenant too. And that covenant was on the day that you eat of this particular tree, you will die. Now they didn't die physically, but they did die spiritually. They were no longer able to reflect God's holy character. They were no longer able to obey God. And so now that has been passed to us. And we are not able to obey God. We can't. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, our natural mindset, is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We like to think 
that we are good people. And we like to say, you know what? I might make mistakes, but overall, I'm a good person. But usually when we say that, we have somebody in our mind that we're comparing ourselves to. At least I'm not Hitler. At least I'm not some of these celebrities on TV. At least I'm not that guy over there. And we compare ourselves to someone else. But a comparison in the Bible isn't to other people. We're to compare to God. The law in the, Old, in the Old Testament is the character of God. It shows us just how righteous and holy God is. And it shows us just how sinful we are. And furthermore, in Romans 3, it says none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one sees God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The day in that sentence, it's talking about us. The day is talking about us. We in our natural state are worthless before God. We don't do good and we can't do good. A lot of times we hear, you know, they might do this bad thing, but they got a good heart. And it's usually after one of the worst things you can hear. Hey, this person, you know, killed three people, but he's got a good heart. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately sick. And in Colossians it says we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead. We are oppressed in sin. We cannot get out of it. We cannot stop sinning. So how can we escape? And we know the, the, the uh, result of this sin. The wrath of God being away from God. The, the curse is not being with God. Why is that important? Why is it important? Why does it matter whether we're with God or not? Well, just look on the news. Look outside. We see all this hurt and this pain in the world. All the destruction, all the wars, all the pandemics, all the sickness, all the death. All this is a result of not being with God. With God is peace and joy and life and love. And without God is the opposite. And so not being with God is the curse. So what, but what can we do? What can we do to get out of this? What if we pray? That doesn't save us. That doesn't do anything. What if we read the Bible every day? That doesn't save us either. What if we come to church? What if we come down to the altar? What if we get baptized? What if we become preachers and teachers and missionaries and sing in the band? What if we give everything we have to the poor? What if we try really, really hard? All those things are good, but they can't save us. Again, the standard by which we are judged isn't our effort, and it isn't other people. The standard by which we are judged is the holy God. Leviticus 19.2, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. But Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In John 8.58, we are slaves to sin. And so even the best things that we do are still stained with sin. 
And so when we try to take those good things and compare them to the perfection of the almighty God, as it says in Isaiah chapter 64, they're like filthy rags. They're worthless. They can't clean anything. There is nothing we can do to escape. We need a savior. We need someone to do what we can't. We need someone to defeat sin and death for us. We need someone to satisfy God's wrath against our sin for us. We need a savior. And the savior has come. Paul says in Romans chapter seven, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the Savior who can save us from this curse. That's the hard part. That's the hard part of the passage. Here comes the hope. Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, God wrote his law on stone, on something outside of the people something that was foreign to them. But they still had their nature, their sinful nature in them. Just like we still, as we were born, we had our sinful nature in us. But now God says, I'm going to write my law within them, and I'm going to put it on their heart. This is pointing to a new nature, a recreated, a reborn nature. One that is, more, that is predisposed to obey God. Not the dead one that died, that we got from Adam but a new one that is alive in Christ. We have a new heart. We have a new spirit. We are reborn so that the things of God, we can start to obey. We can start to obey God. And we won't be perfect. We won't be perfect until we reach heaven. But we will grow and we will obey God. And we will no longer be trapped in our sin. But it's still not good enough, right? For us to just start obeying God. For us to just begin obeying God. There has to be something to pay for those sins. And that's Jesus Christ. The law that we are starting to obey, Christ has fulfilled perfectly. The Old Testament law that we couldn't do, that we couldn't keep, Christ came and lived and kept it perfectly. The reason he was baptized, the reason that he walked on this earth, the reason that he didn't just come and die but came and lived a, a, a life is so that he could fulfill the law of God in our place. The law, the, what we couldn't do, Jesus did in obeying God perfectly. He is the perfect lamb of God. And so while we are growing 
in our obedience to God, Jesus' obedience is already there. And then it continues. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. If you look at the verbs, there's no conditions. There's no probabilities. It doesn't say, I might be their God. Or if this happens, they will be my people. We see firm, sure verbs. I will be their God. They shall be my people. These are promises. These are promises. God has declared that he will be our God and that we will be his people. God has set his love on us. God has foreseen all of our faults, all of our sin, all of our backsliding. Yet nevertheless, he has set his heart upon us. He has loved us and he has made us his people. Again, not because of us. There's nothing in us that would attract God to us. We are nothing but dust. And the air that we have is given from him. He gives us the air to breathe and we use it to blaspheme. He gives us life and we use it to sin against him. It's not something in us that causes him to love us. It's who he is. He has loved us, not because we deserve it, but because he has chosen to love us. He loves us because he is love. And then it continues. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now again, that doesn't mean we should kick all the teachers out, right? But what it means is that we are beginning to know God, as Moses knew God. Moses knew God personally. But the rest of the Israelites didn't. The rest of Israel didn't know God. It was Moses that intervened between God and the people. But our mediator is Jesus Christ, God himself. And we all know God. We all know God personally. Not through somebody else, not through somebody else's experience, but personally. We don't go into a, a, a confessional. We go to God. We go to the throne. We don't go before uh, someone to mediate between us because we have Jesus Christ who's at the right hand of God. We know God. And while we don't know him perfectly and fully yet, we will know him fully when we see him as he truly is. As it says in the first time, we will see him as he truly is. And we will be like him. And we know him personally because he is our father. Through this recreation, through this rebirth, we are born as children of God. Through faith in Christ, we are children of God and we know him. Not as some business partner. We know him as father. And we all know him from the least to the greatest. There is no hierarchy in the family of God. There's no one who is greater or higher or smarter or better in the family of God. We are all one. We are all equal. And we are all equal because we are equally sinful and we have equally been saved by Christ. We are a family. And no one in a family is higher or lower. We are together. 
because we have all been saved by Christ. We have the one spirit, the spirit of God that dwells in us. And we are one. In the Old Testament, these covenants, these laws, these promises were solidified by sacrifices. There was always sacrifices that solidified or that sealed the deal, so to say. This new covenant has a sacrifice too. But unlike the old covenant, they had many, many, many sacrifices where many animals died and were killed, where, we had, where they had to keep doing it over and over and over again. We have a better sacrifice. We have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself, the perfect lamb of God. As it says in Hebrews 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because it was finished. There was nothing else to do. There was no more sacrifice needed. He sat down and he's waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool when he comes back. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We no longer make sacrifices. We no longer kill goats and bulls because Christ died for us. And there is no animal that can compare to the sacrifice of the righteous Jesus Christ. The law, the righteousness that Christ won in his perfect life through faith is given to us. And the penalty for our sin, our wickedness, our transgression is given to Jesus and he pays for it on the cross in his blood. One of the worst lies that I hate that comes straight from hell is the lie that a true believer could lose their salvation. There is, for us who believe, who truly believe, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to lose your salvation. Why? Because there was nothing you did to earn it in the first place. We can't lose it because we didn't earn it. Jesus Christ earned our salvation. And the only way possible for us to lose it is if he loses it. And he never loses us. We, our salvation is secure because Christ is on his throne and he holds our lives in his hands. So, this is, this is the gospel. This is the gospel, plain and simple. What are we supposed to do in light of it? In light of what God has done for us, this covenant that God has done for us. What are we supposed to do? What is our reaction? In chapter 32 of Jeremiah, we come to this, uh, this account where Jeremiah is in jail. He was prophesying against the king, and the king was like, you know what, I'm, I don't want you talking junk about me, so go to jail. And so his cousin, the word of the Lord comes to him, and he says his cousin's gonna come buy him, uh, sell him some land. And his cousin comes and has to sell him land. Which at this time, this is why Babylon is coming for him. This is why they are already there. It's like buying land in Ukraine right now. 
it's a tough buy, right? But God tells them to buy this land. It says in verse 14, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. God tells them to buy this land because Israel's coming back. The people will come back and they will be restored. How does this apply to us? We have received Christ. We have received the perfection of Jesus Christ. We have received eternal life. If we believe in Christ, eternal life isn't something in the future. We have eternal life now. So how do we live in light of the eternal life that Christ has given us? We live as though we will be fully restored in heaven. We don't live for this world. We don't live for this earth, right? We live knowing that we will live forever and that what we do now is for Jesus. That means we take time to read the scriptures, to read God's word. We take time to pray to God and we step out of our comfort zone. We step out of whatever we got to do to proclaim Jesus Christ crucified to the world. Because though we have eternal life, others outside do not. They need to hear this gospel message. The point of evangelism, the point of sharing the gospel, the ultimate point isn't just so that people will come to faith in Christ. We definitely want that. But there's an even greater goal, and that is that Jesus Christ will be glorified. Just think about what Christ has done for us. He has left his throne to live as a homeless man, the perfect life that we could. He died on the cross by the hands of the people that he created to give us his righteousness and to take our punishment. And he rose victorious and now reigns over all. He owns our lives. He protects our lives. He owns our allegiance. We should bring glory to him. That should be our one goal. Bring glory to our great savior who has saved us. We were in the pit of despair, but Christ has saved us. And so let us bring glory to him. As we go throughout this week and through the next weeks, we will continue to live in this world, this tough world where there will be trials and tribulations. There will be pains. There will be sufferings. But we can live knowing that our life is secure in Christ, that our souls are purchased by the blood of Jesus, and that as long as he is beside the right hand of God the Father, we are safe from the oppressor of sin and death, that we are safe from the wrath of God, and that we are saved forever. As it says in Hebrews chapter 2, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? There is no other salvation in this world. There is no other religion in this world that comes 
can come close to this great salvation. Every other religion is about do, do, do. You have to do something to, to be saved. But Christianity, the true religion, the true gospel, is that whatever you had to do, Christ has done it for you. And so you don't have to do anything because Christ has done it all. And your salvation is in Christ. This is the new covenant. Trust in Christ and his righteousness covers you. His blood covers you. And we will live in his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for his, his humbling himself to come, to live the life that we couldn't, to die the death that we should have, and to be raised from the dead so that we have eternal life in him. And Father, thank you that he is sitting on his throne and that while he is on his throne, no one can tell us to leave. No one can bid us to depart. No one can take away our salvation because Christ has us in the palm of his hand. In his name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and